You're listening to Recovery Survey, the podcast that shatters stigmas around different types of addictions and takes a deep dive into spiritual principles. I find a lot of wisdom that comes from your show. You interview different people and I know you just do an overall good job and you're a blessing to recovery in general. So I want to make that very clear for the record that I love the movement that you have, what you're doing, you're saving lives and you're educating and informing people. I think that's important. I want to thank my friends at Recovery Survey for giving me the opportunity to talk to them about my recovery journey. Thank you for having me on uh, the new podcast that you just developed, which is unbelievable, Recovery Survey Podcast. I really appreciate what you're doing and, and been doing and continue doing. Our guest today is a Canadian hip-hop artist named Chris. He goes by the stage name Ill Tone, and he's here to tell us about his recovery journey. Welcome to the show, Chris. Uh, yeah, so I go by the uh, the artist name of Ill Tone. Uh, my actual name is Chris, but I grew up in a small town uh, called the Comox Valley on Vancouver Island in British Columbia, Canada. And I noticed from a very early age that um, I had substance abuse issues stemming from social anxiety and uh, the underlying defects of that nature. I found that uh, when I uh, would drink alcohol and uh, use other substances like marijuana, um, that I would uh, be looser. I didn't have the same social anxiety issues. Socializing was easier for me. Um, but right away, I noticed that I was the first one to get started on the substances, the last one to finish, the worst uh, feeling one the next morning, and the most willing to start it all over again despite the damage that I had caused myself and others the night before. Uh, by my mid-teens, I was a daily user of uh, both marijuana and alcohol, and um, I remember at about age 15 looking at a friend of mine and saying, we have, we have a problem, we're alcoholics. Uh, this was at age 15, so uh, recognizing the powerlessness of my disease is something that came very early. Um, I discovered hip-hop music uh, at an early age, and that was always an outlet for me to express emotions stemming from both my substance abuse and the underlying defects causing those substance abuse issues. Uh, and I, I perceived that as being a very positive outlet. I could express my emotions song format and be creative and it also gave me a focus to stay away from the other stuff so I could sit down and write a song and I wasn't out causing havoc when I was doing that. So that was a very positive outlet for me. Uh, when I got into my late teens, um, I had a very serious car wreck and ended up uh, going through treatment as a result of it, that car wreck. But I had it in my mind at that time that I was going to be able to pick and choose my substances. Uh, that I would continue using after, after uh, treatment. So I figured that I go in, I learn how to use socially or cut out one and keep the others and then carry on life as normal. As, um, as I'm sure I don't need to tell you, that's not really how it works. And so when I came out of treatment, I continued using marijuana and, um, and alcohol and thought that I would be able to control my substance abuse issues uh, despite what I had learned in treatment, which was all to the contrary. And so when I got out, I um, I did stay, I wouldn't say I was clean or sober. 
but I was certainly a, a little bit better off having had the, the break in, in my using time um, because I had, you know, a couple couple months to screw my head back on. Within a couple years, things spiraled out of control again. Um, at this time, I had moved from the small town in which I grew up over to Vancouver, and I had um, immersed myself in the hip-hop community of Vancouver. So I was doing shows, things of that nature. But as we all know, the entertainment industry is riddled with substance abuse issues as well. I'm not going to blame my problems on, um, on the industry or my surroundings. Um, I made my own decisions. But being in bars and nightclubs all the time, very hard to abstain from those, uh, those problems uh, with, with chemical dependency just because, you know, it's always around, right? Um, I have a, uh, a little bit of a saying that, you know, if you're at an Italian restaurant for long enough, you're going to eat Italian food. And so I did participate a lot in the drinking culture, which is prevalent in the performance industry. Um, in my mid-20s, um, I'd gotten quite a bit further into uh, the music scene, but I wanted to clean up and uh, take an actual shot at getting somewhere with music. So I had to turn it from a hobby to a career, so to speak. And so I went back to treatment again, this time with a crack cocaine dependency, uh, which is a, uh, a beast all on its own. It drains the bank account very quick and leaves one physically, you know, a, a physical shell of one's former self. And I was certainly looking very gaunt. I was not healthy physically or mentally. Uh, so I decided to go back to treatment, this time by my own volition. Uh, the first time I could say very clearly it was it was partly because of the law. I had been in a car accident. I knew that I would get a lesser sentence as a result of having gone to treatment. So I had gone uh, on those grounds the first time around. But this time, I made the decision to go in totally independently. I'd also just finished up audio engineering and production school for my music. And had done fairly well despite my, my, my problems. So I knew that if I cleaned up, I would excel uh, at my craft at MCing and beat making and engineering. So I went back in on my own, by my own volition and uh, really put my best foot forward there. I worked very hard. I divulged all. I didn't hold anything back. Uh, this time I was in a non-12 step based uh, treatment facility and um, they weren't really pushing the 12 steps too much. They weren't opposed to them. I was very adamantly opposed to spiritual growth at that time. Um, I would even say that I was bigoted towards religion, and that's something that I'm glad I turned the corner on today because, as we all know, spiritual growth and um, you know belief in a higher power is uh, the foundation of the program. And if we are bigoted towards those principles, we won't really be able to grow and build connections in that regard it, uh, as well. So um, I've thrown uh, you know that bigotry by the wayside and have since turned the corner. But at that time. Um, I was I was very atheist uh, in my belief structure. So I went through, though, I did do my best in treatment, but I came out and there was no aftercare. I did not participate in the fellowship. I didn't grow a support community. There was nothing awesome about my recovery. I was just white-knuckling it. I went right back into the bars and nightclubs. And uh, once again, that Italian restaurant was looking awfully tasty. I did manage to white-knuckle it for uh, two and a half years there. But eventually the kicker was I was out on tour in Europe and after having uh, white knuckled it for two and a half years, I eventually just grabbed, uh, grabbed a beer. And by the end of the tour, I was back to drinking, you know, 15 to 20 a day. I came back to Canada and got back into the harder drugs. And uh, it was elevated a little bit to a crystal meth addiction rather than just crack cocaine and coke and alcohol and marijuana. Now I was hooked on crystal meth, which was 
you know, a devil all unto itself. It's uh, a different beast, I think. I mean, everybody has their own struggles. Some people have marijuana as their struggle. Well, that's it for you. And I'm not saying my problems are any worse. But for me, that was the one that sunk me very quickly. I promptly threw all my creative hobbies by the wayside. I isolated quite a bit. I got a different job that was that was positive for me. I was I got into the sales industry, uh, but without that, um, you know, spiritual connection with either creativity or participating in the fellowship or making friends that were you know suffering from similar ailments that I was suffering from, being chemical dependency and uh, you know self esteem issues and social anxiety. Uh, without that network of people who understood me, I uh, kind of withered and withered up and proceeded to start dying, you know, spiritually, morally, physically again. Uh, to make a long story short, I ended up just uh, last year in April, I got arrested and found myself in uh, Wilkinson Prison down in Victoria, which is the capital city in, uh, here in British Columbia. Not that big of a city, about 300,000 people, but that's where I was living uh, beforehand. And got arrested, wound up in prison, and my addict mind was still staying while I was in there. Um, I had, I had really, I really lost. Uh, I'll backtrack a bit here. I had really lost connection with my family, all my former friends, uh, the music community, uh, as happens when one is isolated in uh, his or her addiction. But when I went into prison, my parents were were willing to pay for a lawyer to help me out. And um, it was at, at that point, because I had previously been thinking that I was just going to get out, go into a sober house where I could use, I'd be out on bail, and then I'd go right back to my same lifestyle, and everybody else could go through themselves. Um, but once uh, my parents started really helping me out and paying for my lawyer, and I was conversing with my mom for the first time in years, I really decided to make another change. I was like, well, I can't put my, I can't put my family through this again. They're sticking their neck out for me, my bail. You know, my mom is still in my corner after all these years of, you know, being a terrible son, essentially. And I'm really going to really gonna try this out again. So I actually ended up getting released on bail to the treatment facility that I had gone to when I was 19, which was a 12-step-based treatment facility. And it was a little bit different of a, a situation because I didn't have to be dragged in the door kicking and screaming like the first time around where I went in super nervous and dreading, dreading having to make any sort of change. I was coming out of prison into treatment and it was, you know, a joyous experience. Treatment's a lot better than prison, I'll tell you that much. So I uh, went back in, in good spirits and uh, with the right attitude. And uh, the biggest thing that shifted in me was I was, I wasn't going to look at that word God in uh, the 12 steps with disdain anymore. I was going to listen to what I was told. I was going to take the advice of the people around me. Because how can you look into the program like AA or NA where, you know, it's working for people. They're happy. Uh, they're smiling. They have friends. They have lives. How can I look in at that scowling when, you know, all I'm looking at myself at in the mirror is a scowling man. That's all I see when I look in the mirror. But how can I look at all these people smiling and think that what they're doing is wrong when, you know, internally I'm feeling... I'm feeling void of all spirituality, void of all morality. So how can I judge them, you know, when they're willing to accept me? And how can I judge them and not be willing to accept them when what they're doing is working? So um, I went in with the right attitude. I really uh, got cracking on the step work in the treatment program. I went into, uh, they take you through steps one to five. And on step five, we read through with a chaplain uh, who became a very good inspiration to me while I was in treatment. 
great guy named Sean. I, you know, got along with all my counselors. Not every day of it was perfect. I have a little bit of a temper. I'm not going to say that my defects, the underlying defects, alleviated themselves immediately because that's not how it works. It would be nice if it were that way, but I can't snap my finger and make 30-some-odd years of defects go away just like that. Uh, but I really did work hard. I divulged all of my step work. I went through extended care uh, there. So I was in treatment for three and a half months. I got a sponsor. I started doing uh, regular meetings, three to five a week at first. I have now taken on a sponsee. This is fast forwarding a little bit. I do service work on the, um, the GSR, the group service representative for uh, the Narcotics Anonymous Nooner here in Nanaimo. I've really immersed myself in the program. And so um, from the time that I went into prison down in Victoria, which was just over 14 months ago, I feel more spiritually, morally, and totally whole than I did white-knuckling at two and a half years before in my early 20s after getting out of that non-12-step-based treatment facility. I have friends today. I have, uh, you know, my mother is back in my life. I'm on semi-speaking terms with my father after, uh, you know, eight years of having not spoken to him. Uh, like I said, friends again. I picked back up my creative hobbies, and I'm starting to learn how to use them uh, or, or practice them without the, uh, using the substances as well. Um, and because I have that recovery community as well to um, be there in a positive, you know, in a positive place in my life to uh, exist in, you know, a place of positivity and help me, you know, encourage me to go through this in a sober manner. It's actually, you know, fun again. It's not just white knuckling it in bars and nightclubs. It's getting back to writing, getting back to, uh, you know, structuring instrumentals, getting back into the production side of things. So it's, yeah, it's become, it's become fun again, rather than just doing it, you know, hell bent on making it further in the industry with really no enjoyment coming from it. Well, you mentioned something that I'd like to maybe unpack a little bit more. You were talking about your struggle with the higher power concept and coming into the rooms with, I can't remember if you said ag- agnostic or atheist viewpoints, but, uh, what was it or how did you get to that place where you accepted a higher power and got with the higher power concept? Because I know a lot of people that when they first come into 12-step programs, that that's one of the biggest things that they struggle with. And I know even for me personally, when I came in and I saw you know the steps up there on the wall and saw the word God, I, I definitely remember kind of like going, ooh, like I don't know if this is for me. So what was it? How did you get to that place where you were able to come to terms with the higher power and, and and use that in your recovery? Good question. So when I was in uh, when I was in prison down in Victoria, there was the opportunity to get off of my unit once per week and go to a weekly AA meeting that was uh, how that was uh, hosted on another unit. And uh, one of the people who ran that meeting and who oversaw things on that unit was uh, was the prison inmate chaplain. And um, he was a really nice guy. His name was Kevin. And um, I put in a request to get a big book through him. And I, was, I wasn't I was a stranger to the program. I had been to meetings before after my first time through, you know, with the, uh, with the perception that I would be able to pick and choose my substances. But I really didn't want to do the steps or read the big book or anything. I just wanted to go to stay sober for an hour be clean for an hour and then, you know, go right back to my life or whatever, uh, maybe white knuckle it for a few days at that point. But 
I decided when I was in prison, because there wasn't much else to do, that I would read the big book. I would read the uh, living sober text. I would read whatever literature they had for me. Um, I started reading um, issues of Grapevine as well, which I uh, I love. It's like a meeting, you know, an AA meeting in a little uh, Reader's Digest style magazine, uh, which is pretty cool too. So I put in requests to the chaplain to get these materials and started thinking, you know, like this guy is awesome. He's bringing me, you know, books to read. Uh, he's there to get us off the unit once a week, if nothing else. He's, uh, you know, overseeing these AA meetings. Uh, the guys who are coming from outside the prison to um, actually facilitate and chair the meetings, uh, you know, they're great too. How can I scoff at this, you know? So I started thinking maybe there's more to this. And so because I was raised atheist, it was a little bit harder for me. But I've always been by the belief that I am I am an open person. And so I, I you know, I was thinking, well, I've, I've got to be more open about this too. So I thought, you know, my spirituality and my spiritual principles for now, um, until I, you know, may have, have a, you know, aha moment where I change my mind or open up to something uh, even greater than this. My spiritual, um, my, my perception of spirituality is going to be just that the fellowship itself um, is my spirituality because there's all these great people working together to accomplish the common goal of helping one another stay sober. So, like, you know, that in itself is a power greater than myself. So it doesn't matter what the person on my left thinks about spirituality. They may be a, a Buddhist or, or a Christian or Islamic or whatever they may be. They're in this program for the same reason I am. So we're helping one another out. So how is that not a power greater than myself? So to this day, that's kind of how I, um, how I identify uh, uh, with my higher powers, just that the program itself is, uh, you know, a group of drunks. God, a group of drunks helping other drunks so they can in turn help drunks help drunks. Or, uh, uh, you know, in NA we say group of degenerates or whatever. Whatever anybody else wants to believe, that's their, um, that's their business for sure. I'm never going to stop at anybody else's concept of religion but that or spirituality for that matter. But that is my concept of spirituality in the context of the 12-step fellowship. I've also started thinking lately, I don't know, I have uh, some concept of uh, creational force as well, uh, maybe a creator of the universe that I don't really see as being a sentient power, but uh, maybe a non-sentient creator like, you know, um, I believe in the Big Bang, but if it was just a swirling mass of heat and chemicals, who put the heat and chemicals there? So um, I would consider myself more of an agnostic today than an atheist, but I was certainly raised atheist. So that's a little bit of background on how I came to believe in a power greater than myself. That's awesome, man. I appreciate you sharing that with us. Another thing that you kind of alluded to, um, and it's something I struggled with when I first came in, is uh, it's what I call buffet style. Like I wanted to pick and choose what I wanted from the program and what I didn't want, and I kind of wanted to make my own program. You know, it, it didn't work out for me. You know, I ended up, I ended up relapsing, using again, and I think that was kind of the jarring experience that made me go. I can't make up my own program. Like if I'm going to do this, I need to do it a hundred percent and make the program the most important thing, you know, quit trying to pick and choose and, and do what I want. And I think a lot of that came from realizing my powerlessness and realizing, just realizing that I wasn't as important or as powerful as I think I was. And I think for me, that was part of of coming to that realization of that higher power and, and actually wanting to practice surrender and put some of these principles into, into application and, 
and actually do the program the way that it's designed to be done. Absolutely. So first off, I love the I love the term buffet style. I'm going to use that actually when I talk to people. No buffet style recovery. That's awesome. For sure, I've never heard that one before. Uh, so yeah, I I had my own. Uh, like I said, relapse is part of my um, part of my path. I uh, did go through treatment three times. I've actually been to treatment five times, but through completing programs uh, uh, three times. So I did the same thing. Uh, the first time I got out and it was, you know, marijuana and alcohol were going to stay in my life, but cocaine was going to be gone. Well, I mean, that didn't take long for me to get back to, uh, first of all, binge drinking. I couldn't socially drink. None of us can. And uh, secondly, getting back into the cocaine because all my, my judgment goes out the window when I'm drinking and I just get back into that stuff too. So that didn't work. And then uh, when I went through in my uh, mid-20s, so that, that first experience was after I went in when I was 19 in my late teens. Um, in my mid-20s, I went in with the concept or with the idea that I was going to uh, get rid of everything. But then, you know, two and a half years later, just when I was on that tour, when I picked up that one beer, uh, it was like two months before I was all of a sudden a crystal meth addict. And that was something that was not prominent in my life prior to my last into uh, trying to abstain from, from substances. So, you know, that didn't work either. Picking up that one beer certainly didn't, didn't get me anywhere but back uh, down to street-level addiction. And so this time, I've just decided that there won't be anything. There won't be, you know, a puff of a joint here and there. Uh, there's not going to be any beer or anything like that, uh, not even the near beers, you know, the non-alcoholics, because what's the point? I wouldn't do a line of, of uh, non-cocaine cocaine, you know what I mean? So I'm not going to pick up a uh, uh, non-alcoholic beer because it's just, you know, something that tastes like beer that's going to trigger me uh, to do something else. So, so yeah, uh, no buffet-style recovery on this end either. Absolutely, man. We can't be doing that buffet-style recovery. If anyone's interested in your hip-hop music, where can they find that at? Uh, if anybody does want to look into uh, my music, I do have a new album uh, out. It's called Up In My Head. And you can find it at illtone.bandcamp.com. That's I-L-L dot T-O-N-E dot bandcamp.com. Uh, also on Spotify, uh, also on Instagram, instagram.com slash illtonesmusic, facebook.com slash illtonesmusic. Uh, you can follow me on those platforms as well, but I do make a lot of recovery-themed songs. So if you are... Uh, looking for some uh, hip-hop music from Canada that you might be able to relate to, and uh, you're in the uh, in the recovery, uh, then you might find a few gems in the lyrics uh, in those tracks. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate you sharing with us about your journey. That was great, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much, Brett. I appreciate you having me on the show. Thank you again, Chris, for sharing your journey with us. The links for his social media as well as his band camp will be in the show notes. Be sure to check that out. You've been listening to Recovery Survey. If you got anything out of today's episode, I'd ask you to please leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us at recoverysurvey.com. You can listen to all of our episodes on the website as well as connect with us on social media where you can get previews for upcoming episodes.
so you love podcasts and you want to listen to more amazing content, but you have no idea what to listen to. And your friends keep telling you about great episodes, yet you can never remember what they told you. Well, here's the answer. Good Pods. It's the social app dedicated to podcasts where your friends, podcast listeners, and favorite podcast hosts all come together to share on their feeds what they recommend and what they listen to. You can connect to others, bookmark episodes, start a conversation about the episode, connect to the hosts, and most importantly, listen to great podcasts right in the Good Pods app. Download Good Pods wherever you get your apps and start sharing with a community that loves to listen. Good Pods, it's where to connect and listen.